Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental film review podcast with me, Dan, feasting on roasted chestnuts during the barren winter months in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, getting addicted to chocolate-covered rice cakes in Cambridge, UK. Ooh, tasty. In this podcast, (laughs) we discuss forgotten fantastical films, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, because nothing beats a futuristic look at the 90s from the perspective of the 80s, but actually made in the 2010s. We love (laughs) Nostalgiaception. (laughs) Conrad, how are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Yes, good. Eating chestnuts. <laughs> eating chestnuts. What, why the chestnuts? What's going on there? Oh, for some reason they're selling them at the local supermarket. So Hannah just bought a whole bunch. And it's, yeah, I, I've never really gotten into chestnuts properly. Uh, the, the trick <laughs> is to score it properly oh. so that they actually open up when you roast them. Otherwise, they explode in your oven. <laughs> chestnut shrapnel everywhere, which actually did happen the first time we did it. But you learn from that. And yeah, they're just delicious. I love them. Great. Gosh, I mean, here there's a tradition of chestnuts roasting on an open fire for Christmas, but I guess if you don't score them, they must become sort of projectile and dangerous. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Very dangerous. <laughs> so what have you been doing, Conrad? Uh, I've been taking advantage of the lockdown, which continues here in the UK, yes. uh, to catch up on loads of films on streaming that I haven't seen yet. And mm-hmm. that's just, there's just so much, especially in horror. It's just tons of it. I know. We are living in a renaissance of horror. Yeah, it's almost like we knew. We were sort of stocking up on stuff that people could binge on for a year. (laughs) Pretty amazing. So, yeah, I watched Come to Daddy, the Elijah Wood movie. Ah, yes. Which is a directorial debut of Ant Timpson, who's a Kiwi, and quite the producer, usually. He's a big supporter of horror, and he produces the ABCs of horror, and he is also responsible for today's movie in a productorial role. So, yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah, quite not really... Is it horror? I guess it is. It's more of a tense thriller, but with nasty gore scenes in it. But it's sort of funny as well. And Mm -hmm. Elijah Wood's great in it, as he always is. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I I feel like um, I've actually been thinking about it. Elijah Wood and Daniel Radcliffe, because I actually genuinely get them mixed up. They do look (laughs) very, very similar. Uh, And I get their movies mixed up. But they have completely cast aside their sort of typecasting, you know, coming from Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings for Elijah Wood and Harry Potter for Daniel Radcliffe because they're doing such interesting films. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Daniel Radcliffe and Horns and Swiss Army Man, just ridiculous movies. And uh, (laughs) Elijah Wood and Maniac, and you've just mentioned Come to Daddy. Yeah. yeah, I'm so amazed at how they've been able to sort of completely change their trajectory in terms of their career. Yeah, and Robert Pattinson is another example of that, I think, where they make millions being sort of a heartthrob or a child actor in some mm. massive franchise. And then after that, just spend the rest of their career just doing things that interest them artistically. And it's really interesting what they Mm. come up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just watched one of Pattinson's movies, High Life, science fiction movie. Oh, okay, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, fascinating. Very. I mean, don't watch it if you're (laughs) feeling low. Oh, yes. (laughs) But yeah, small group of people trapped in space going slowly insane. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's very moody and moving and thought-provoking. 
and a great tour de force for Robert Pattinson. And he even sings a song on the end credits, which is oh, really nice. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, written by Tindersticks, who did the score. So it's, yeah, I know what you mean. These child actors that grow up and do something interesting with their career is really mm. great. I love mm-hmm. watching that. Yeah. So, anything interesting marinating in the mailbag today? Well, people have been basting Vamp with lots of love on Twitter oh, yes. <laughs> following the release of our last episode. Yes, so Maul Phantom said, Vamp is absolutely amazing and should be held up like The Lost Boys and Fright Night. Oh, yes, should. High praise. Someone who goes by the handle of First Scream 2 said, One of the finest vampire films of the 80s, criminally underrated. So, mm, we do seem to have uncovered an underappreciated gem. Yes, it really was. Definitely. But, Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Oh, hey Serge. Hello Serge. He was not quite so enthusiastic in his review. He said... Vamp is one of those films that I can't say I enjoyed too much, but I'm still glad it exists. I thought that maybe it took too long, even at 93 minutes, to go not very far. But I definitely think it has more good ideas than bad. Okay, okay, okay. There are valid points there. Hmm. But yeah, I did find it a very fun, rollicking movie. Yeah, for the most part. I think, as I said, when it's just Amaretto and Keith running around town in the middle section, it sort of loses energy. But I still think it's pretty cool. Mm. So yes, great stuff in the mailbag, as always. But Dan, what are we going to be talking about this time? Well, I'll just go see. (laughs) Oh, it's a spaceship today. Oh, weird. I think I have to touch this electric ball thing. Hang on. You always have to touch the electric ball thing. (laughs) (laughs) This is it, soldier. We have to hit these damn machines with everything we've got. You're our last hope, Turbo Rider. Take this last copy of Turbo Kid with you. The fate of our future is in your hand. Oh, okay. Today I have with me Turbo Kid, and this was chosen for us by our patron, Thomas Kaiser. Mm, I've never seen that. Well, I have. It's the 2015 sci-fi retro 80s inspired movie directed by Francois Simon. I'm, I'm going to butcher these names. Sorry. <laughs> Francois Simon, Anouk Whistle, and Yon Carl Whistle. Also known as RKSS, I believe. And mm. uh, they also wrote the film. And Turbo Kid stars Monroe Chambers as the kid, Laurence LeBeuf as Apple, Michael Ironside as Zeus, Edwin Wright as Skeletron, and Aaron Jeffrey as Frederick. Ah, and what happens in this masterpiece? Turbo Kid, set in the near distant post-apocalyptic wasteland future of 1997. This 80s retro-inspired sci-fi follows the kid as he tries to survive brutalizing BMX bandits, the rare commodity water, and the villainous Zeus. Mm. However, he is not alone. Aided by the friendship robot Apple and an Australian arm wrestling cowboy Frederick, he seeks to avenge his parents' death adopting the name Turbo Kid. But will his newfound arm blaster liquefy all his enemies, or will Skeletron saw him into a million bloody pieces? Join us as we discuss this gory coming-of-age love story after the break. Ooh, can't wait. We are back to discuss Turbo Kid. I did want to start it off by re-mentioning Ant Thompson that you actually talked about mm. in the start of the episode. I didn't know he was such a sort of renowned producer mm. of horror and, I guess, sci-fi. He produced ABCs of Death, the horror anthology, and actually Turbo Kid was submitted 
to the ABCs of death, but didn't get selected. Oh. So it was a short film at the time called T for Turbo. <laughs> that makes sense. Ant Timpson also produced Deathgasm and The Greasy Strangler. Oh, yeah. And I've seen The Greasy Strangler, and it is so weird. <laughs> it is the weirdest horror thriller I have seen ever in my life. It's so bizarre. Okay. Have you seen it? <laughs> I haven't, no. But having seen Come to Daddy, I know sort of what I should be prepared for. But right. Yes. I think it's probably even more out there than Come to Daddy was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Deathgasm as well is another berserk, crazy movie of <laughs> lots of gore, lots of exploding body parts. Um, a New Zealand film as well. So, yeah, Turbo Kid is a New Zealand slash Canadian mm. joint production. Yeah, and it's a fascinating one because it's created by this triumvirate of directors. Yes. Francois Simard, Anouk Whistle and Juan Carl Whistle, who are brother and sister, I believe. Uh-huh. Collectively, they call themselves RKSS, which stands for Roadkill Superstars. Oh, right. <laughs> didn't know that. (laughs) That's awesome. And they specialised in these sort of hyper-violent, hyper-gory things that just are shot through with this bizarre glee Mm -hmm. (laughs) that means that you can't really take against them, even though they're really, really grim. (laughs) Yeah. I do really love this kind of explosion of 80s-inspired horror and sci-fi and action, but taking it to the extreme and always black comedy as well, very, very dark Mm. and and hilarious, and taking gore to the extreme that it's just hysterically funny. Mm. Along with Turbo Kid, I thought of some other films that have come out recently, Deathgasm, um, we've mentioned, Mm. Wormwood, Road of the Dead, Necrotronic, Wolf Cop, Velocipasta, <laughs> Kung Fury, Hobo with a Shotgun, Hardcore Henry, just all of these ridiculously violent movies, but just <laughs> hilarious uh, at the same time. And it's just, oh, I love them so much. And they've taken all the best parts of those 80s schlocky movies and made them kind of a little bit more polished, yeah. but still retaining that real B-grade, low-budget <laughs> look to it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of like Stranger Things, which probably kicked this whole thing off. It's sort of like the best 80s TV series that you would have wished for as a kid, but with good special effects. Mm-hmm. So it's like Heather Wixon was saying in her last episode that she doesn't like films that sort of desperately try to sound like the 80s by using synthesizers. And that's because the music is always slicker and better produced and using the kind of technology that you could have only dreamed about mm. in the 80s. Yeah, sure. So it actually sounds a lot better than it really did at the time. And these movies look a lot better than would have been possible to achieve at the time but there's just such a love of the aesthetic Mm. it's just this attempt to recapture the feel of the 80s but to do it in a way that it could never have been done in the 80s and that's quite an intoxicating combination especially for people of my generation that grew up in the 80s and you have all these fond memories but the thing is if you actually revisit some of the stuff that came out in the 80s it's not that good (laughs) yeah but i actually feel like a lot of these movies are not trying to be super polished as well they're actually trying to look Mm. a little bit rough even in turbo kid the acting is not exceptional acting compared to blockbuster movies it's pretty terrible acting but (laughs) because of this type of movie it doesn't even matter like that's what is so great about these movies that you're not really focusing on actors and characters and believability it's more about just (laughs) gore effects and ridiculous stories and a world that would never exist in reality yeah i take issue with your point about the acting in the case of monroe and laurence in the two central roles as the kid and apple because i think the two of them are fantastic individually and together it's like lightning in a bottle their relationship is really fun to watch yes that's true and i love how much time the directors have dedicated to that i was listening to the commentary and they were saying that they were really up against it in terms of how much time they had and the weather kept stymieing their attempts to get this thing done and whenever they had a choice to make between film this really complicated action sequence or spend more time developing the relationship between the kid and apple they would choose the latter 
matter because they knew that if they didn't get the audience invested in these two characters, then all the gore just yeah. wouldn't matter. That's very true. And I think that works really well. Yes, it really does. I mean, spoilers here, but when Apple gets shot, I mean, she gets shot twice, mm. it's emotionally charged. Like, I did yeah. feel so sad mm-hmm. for the kid and Apple. I mean, we have to talk about it, but Apple is... The manic pixie dream girl, isn't she? She is (laughs) the epitome of manic pixie dream girl. She is quirky. She dresses crazy. She is overly attentive. She likes him for no reason, props him up, and he uh, manages to change his life and develop as a character because of her. Yeah, very much so. What I like about her is that when we first meet her, she's genuinely disturbing. She has these cold blue eyes. She's constantly getting in your personal space. She's over-enthusiastic, clingy, and you've just seen her talking to the top half of a desiccated corpse. (laughs) So there's just something that's deeply, deeply troubling about her. And you can see why the kid is so reserved and frightened of her and just trying to get away from her. Mm. And I love that as an audience, you go on his journey with her, that you go from being really disturbed and not wanting her around to really appreciating her for who she is and then sort of falling in love with her pretty much because by the end of it, you're totally invested in her. Mm. But yes, she is manic pixie dream robot girl. Yes. (laughs) In fact, I looked this up and she actually belongs to a sort of offshoot of the manic pixie dream girl, which is the magical girlfriend, which apparently is popularised in manga, but started with the American TV series Bewitched in the 60s. And that's where a non-human woman is encountered by chance who becomes dependent on the main character and cohabits with him. And that character is usually inexperienced with women, which leads to their relationship largely being platonic. And this happens an awful lot with robots and fairies and magical things. Uh It's also been called the algorithmically defined fantasy girl, which you see in Blade Runner and her. And of course, Ex Machina, which you've just seen. Yes, right. Although... Eva is a bit more cunning and she's actually manipulating people with her fantasy dream girl act. But yes, you're right. She does just completely sublimate herself to him. She has no inner desires of her own. She just assists him in achieving his goals as the hero on the hero's journey. So it should be deeply problematic, shouldn't it? I mean, at the same time, it is kind of justified because she isn't human. Yeah. So she is a service robot. She is there to service the human. Mm. So what she is doing is what she was made to do. So, you know, it's kind of justified. It's kind of justified. The film's not a satirical examination of this kind of phenomenon, like the Stepford Wives. Sure. But it does tread on the same territory, and it does go in that direction with Michael Ironside's character, Zeus, who is the big bad, who spoilers, is revealed to be another robot at the end Uh and is a corporate robot, which means that following the apocalypse that's rendered the Earth largely uninhabitable and waterless, he did the only thing that he knows how to do, which is to create a vicious autocratic society that he governs over with an iron fist. Mm. So yeah, Mm. there are hints of the critique in there and it sort of gives it a bit of a pass on the Manic Pixie character. But you just can't help but fall in love with Laurence's interpretation of her. Mm -hmm. I think they describe her as having her joy set to 11. And she just is so happy, even when she's beating people to death with a gnome on a stick. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when they are all captured and they're in that pool about to face down all of these baddies and Zeus is giving his big speech and she's cheering along with him. (laughs) It's so funny. Yeah, she just enjoys everything in life. She's just along for the ride and cheerleading for everything that she comes across, which is pretty intoxicating. But yes... As a presentation of a woman, it's <laughs> it's not great. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, before I knew about the concept of Men of Pixie Dream Girl, I loved all of those movies. Mm. I loved Elizabeth Town and Yes Man and yeah. 
all of the Zoe Deschanel movies, you know? Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> this movie hit the same spots for me. Like, she was very funny. Mm. She wasn't annoying because that's sometimes what that character can be like. Mm. And the fact that she kind of taught him how to fight and in the end she saves his life by mm. impaling the woman henchman <laughs> with a unicorn. Yeah, she does all the right things. And in the end, she does help the kid. The kid is a depressed, lonely boy that just does the same thing every single day. And after he meets her, he changes. He takes on the Turbo Kid persona. He avenges his parents. He helps save the world, I guess. Yeah. Like, you know. As you do. Yeah. Because of her, his life was changed forever. So she comes along and not only enables the hero's journey, she is the inciting instant that creates the hero's journey in the first place. So, yeah, mm-hmm. she's got a much bigger role. And also the main yes. character is just so naive. Yeah. And childlike. I mean, he was in his mid 20s, Monroe Chambers, when he made the movie. And right. They still have plans to make a sequel, and he's going to be 30 next year. So oh, right. <laughs> they need to hurry up. <laughs> but yeah, he's so childlike and infantilized. And when he meets Apple for the first time, they're in a playground. He refuses alcohol when it's offered to him. Mm-hmm. It's a very childlike, innocent relationship that they have yes. playing yes. tag with each other. Yes. She's not really sexualized. No, not at all. I mean, the clothing she wears is not sexualized. Yeah, it is kind of childlike. They are kind of portrayed as children. Mm. In the interview, I think they said, um, we always envisioned Turbo Kid to be like some lost crazy kids movie from an alternate 1980s that somehow has just been rediscovered. So it's exactly like that. Like 80s movies were always about kids being completely naive and ignorant and going off on adventures, and this is exactly what that was. Yep, nailed it. Yes. <laughs> so it's an 80s movie for kids that's never been discovered before. I think it's also Mad Max for kids who can't envision any other mode of transport apart from BMX bikes, yeah. which is hilariously funny <laughs> to see these evil gangs of people roaming the wasteland on a BMX bike yes I, I was talking to my wife when we watched it and I was saying, oh, everyone in this future must be so fit. They must have such toned leg muscles yeah. because that's the... Carves <laughs> of steel. <laughs> the mode of transport. Yeah, it's very funny. But, I mean, one of the influences of this movie was BMX Bandits, right. which is that Australian film. I don't know whether you've seen it. I've never seen it. No. But the whole movie is on YouTube and I flick through it and, yeah, it's 100% completely influenced by that movie because what they're wearing is exactly the same as what the kid is wearing with the yellow and the red shoulder pads and just going around on BMX bikes and doing BMX bike tricks and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and of course it kicks off with the song Thunder in Your Heart, which in its original John Farnham incarnation in 1986 was prominently featured in the BMX movie Rad, which is another one I haven't seen. Scene. I haven't seen that. Um, but they couldn't afford the John Farnham version. So they ended up with a 2013 cover by a guy named Stan Bush. Oh, okay. But they ended up liking that one much more because it had a killer guitar solo in it. Ah, um, okay. So yes, lots of influence from BMX movies. With the colour palette thing, I thought it was inspired by the Rubik's Cube that he finds right at the beginning. And I was uh-huh. noticing those primary red, blue and yellows just crop up everywhere. Like the very first scene where he's scavenging in the wasteland. If you look, it's all sort of browns and greys. Apart from there are just chunks of debris around him mm-hmm. that are red, blue and yellow in those colours. And all the way around his little underground home, it's all those red, blues and yellows. So it, it's not just in his clothes and on his bike, it's on everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love the attention to detail with that. There's a lot of production design and detail has gone into this. Yes, and lots of nods to the 80s and 90s as well. Oh, so many. I mean, even just like they're <laughs> getting warm around this fire that they've built and then they're putting VHS tapes on the fire yes. as fuel. It's hilarious. <laughs> 
There are so many references littered throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, for starters, it's set in a 1980s vision of the future that's positioned as 1997, mm -hmm. which is the same setting for Escape from New York, the John Carpenter movie right. from 1981. And of course, it's acid rain that has destroyed the world because that was a big topic in the 80s. Who thinks about acid rain now? Oh, yeah. It's like <laughs> the least of our worries at the moment. But that was a big concern in the 80s for some reason. Yeah, it truly was. Yeah, uh, I mean, I did read um, some other influences of this movie as well. Um, so, Cherry Two Thousand. I haven't seen that movie. No, I haven't either. And I was going to raise that because it has a lot of overlap. Does it? Well, the premise of the movie is that a guy who has a robot for a wife, he has sex with her on a wet kitchen floor, and she short circuits. Oh. And the only way to repair her is to get spare parts in the forbidden zone or something. So he has to hire Melanie Griffith to act as his guide to go into the Forbidden Zone to get oh, spare parts wow. for his, That's very similar. his yeah. sex robot. Yeah, there are a lot of crossovers and we should look at that because that's definitely in the oubliette because, ooh, that bombed hard. Budget of $10 million, box office of $14,000. Ouch. <laughs> but yes, okay. carry on. You had more there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is one influence that they have not mentioned and I did find quite similar, was the movie Tank Girl. Oh. I don't know whether you've seen that. I haven't. But it's adapted from a comic book uh, or graphic novel, I can't remember which. Mm. And it is set in a post-apocalyptic future, and there is a water shortage as well. Oh. But there are also life-size talking kangaroos. Right. So <laughs> a little bit different in that respect. <laughs> and they're... Obviously, just dudes in kangaroo suits, but uh, oh wow, yeah, it's very kind of disturbing to watch. That must be in the oubliette, too, I would imagine, because I've never heard anybody talking about Tank Girl. Really, no, everyone I grew up with watched that movie. Uh, yeah, maybe it just didn't travel internationally. I'm not sure. <laughs> I have heard of it because I just remember hearing a story about the producers complaining that the main character wasn't sexy enough. Oh, I didn't even realize she was supposed to be sexy. Well, that was the problem. There was a comment about her looking like a quote-unquote rug muncher. Oh, I always remember that. That's stuck no, in my head. That's bad. Mm, very bad. So, so that was one. And also Brain Dead was a huge inspiration in terms of all the schlocky gore effects because oof, oh, yeah. they are amazing in this movie. They yeah. are the most inventive, creative deaths I have ever seen <laughs> in any film. <laughs> and they're ridiculous as well. I mean, at one yes. point... My Michael Ironside's character Zeus proudly claims that the human body has 10 gallons of blood in it and that he's reclaiming water from them uh -huh. by putting his enemies into a mincing machine. Yeah. I don't think the people who were doing the special effects for this movie got that note because there's hundreds of gallons of blood <laughs> just spraying out of people in high-pressure hoses. Even when they're cut in half and it's just their bottom half, on the commentary, the director, Anouk Whistle, says that people must have have hearts in their knees because it's just sort of <laughs> pumping upwards <laughs> from their waist. Oh, it's, it's so funny, ridiculous. though. It's hilarious. That's the thing. It's not grotesque because you can't take it seriously you at all. No, it's it's like <laughs> there's so much blood. It just looks like fountains of juice just spraying everywhere. <laughs> uh, it does actually remind me a little bit of Japanese horror films, oh, right. like really gory horror films like Tokyo Girl Fest and stuff. Mm. Because yeah. It's just hoses of spraying blood <laughs> everywhere. And yeah, some of the deaths, like there's one point where the kid slices a guy's head in half so quickly that the top of his head is just spinning around and around like a top <laughs> and then it flings off and slides along the ground. It's so funny. Oh my yeah, and God. The, the totem pole scene right at the very end oh, where oh, yes. because he cuts somebody in half with a spade and accidentally falls on it, he launches the top half of a guy... <laughs> up in the air and it lands on somebody else so they're staggering about with the top half mm -hmm. of fellow gang members stuck on their head. Yeah, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. They were given an extra half day of filming by the producers to do that scene because oh. they had originally scrapped it because they were running out of time, but they gave them an extra half day to get that totem pole special effect right. done because yes. they loved it so much. <laughs> 
Another scene that I can think of, uh, the umbrella scene where mm. he, he stabs a guy with the umbrella and then opens it and the guy just explodes into <laughs> bits of, like, body parts and it just rains, literally rains blood down. And then because he's got an umbrella, they're just sheltering under the umbrella as all this blood is raining down. Yes, and that's when they kiss because mm. they've come close to kissing the kid and Apple a couple of times. Yes. Almost not even conscious that they were going to. It's so childlike. Mm. And then at the very end, they do actually kiss under the shelter of a picnic umbrella yes. with a rain of blood coming down. <laughs> yes. And I think the image of these two childlike figures in pastel colours kissing whilst mm-hmm. being showered with gore is just the perfect encapsulation <laughs> of this movie. If you want yeah. to know what this movie is in one image, that's it. Mm. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did want to ask you, what did you think about the villains of this film? Were there any broad brush characters? Although you do get this backstory with the main character, Zeus, Mm -hmm. killing the kid's parents originally. And you do get this final reveal that he's a robot and he has this Terminator-inspired makeup Mm -hmm. on one side of his face with a red eye sticking out. And and he has this big speech about he is what the humans made him. And as he said to his original owner, he beat him to death with a golf club (laughs) Um, and Michael Ironside is great as Zeus I mean he's been playing this sort of role throughout the 80s and 90s so he was Daryl Revok in Cronenberg Scanners in 81 The Overdog in Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone another oubliette movie I would argue where he plays a very similar role in a very similar (laughs) setting and of course um, Richter in Total Recall with Schwarzenegger in 1990 Uh who uh, famously loses his arms see you at the party Richter that scene ah right if you remember that so yeah he's been a hissable villain for a very long time and was hired quite specifically to do the same thing here yeah because I'm not very familiar with him as an actor at all even though I've seen most of those movies that you've mentioned because mm. I guess he must be quite a big name in this movie because all the other actors I'm not even aware of no. never really seen them in anything a lot of them are Canadian actors apart from Aaron Jeffries of course who's a Kiwi yeah I, I looked him up he's kind of a Kiwi slash Australian he's been in a lot of Kiwi TV shows and movies and Australian TV shows and movies so I'm still because his accent in this movie is very Australian oh, he's okay. the Australian cowboy when i was watching it only kiwis will understand this reference but he reminded me a lot of a tv ad that played throughout the 90s throughout my childhood of a beer a new zealand beer called spates and the tagline and that is spates pride of the south for over a hundred years and (laughs) he dresses exactly the same and i actually had to look him up to make sure it wasn't the same actor because it's exactly the same get up and costume and voice and the way he presents himself yeah <laughs> it's remarkable but he's basically Indiana Jones in this movie oh, I mean yeah. he's introduced arm wrestling with Mullah Ram from the Temple of Doom it's just right. <laughs> ridiculous see I wrote that down and thought oh aren't I clever and then I listened to the commentary and that's exactly what they said as well there he is arm wrestling with Mullah Ram from the Temple of Doom <laughs> right. it was completely intentional not hiding oh. it in the slide Okay, okay. Yeah. It's pretty shocking, though, when that character gets his arm cut off. Mm. Uh, I was not expecting that because you kind of, I expected him to be the hero of the film, but he isn't really the hero. He's kind of the guy that shows up and does some good things every now and again. Yeah, he's the Han Solo character. So Mm. the wisecracking guy that keeps calling the main character kid all the way through it. So, yeah, yeah, he's sort of Harrison Ford's two iconic roles rolled into one. Uh Right, yes, yes. But also Crocodile Dundee. So it's a bit confusing. (laughs) (laughs) It's just all the 80s just mashed together, basically, like the rest of the movie. Yes, this film is just... (laughs) An 80s smoothie, really. Yes. Yeah, back to talking about the villains. I did find uh, Zeus' character could have been more 
I don't know, menacing or evil. I mean, he was evil, mm. but he wasn't as evil as he could have been. It might have been because this movie was so kind of lighthearted and yeah. fun and not hugely serious, not taking itself too seriously. So that's why the baddie wasn't as bad as he could have been. I did laugh a little bit because his head henchman, Skeletron, <laughs> he's mentioned as Skeletron in the credits, is just a mute guy that just looks scary and just brandishes a buzzsaw. I, oh, it's such a cliche in all of these kind of movies that the head henchman just doesn't say anything. No, and he's a stunt performer. I think he does have a cameo with his mask off earlier on in the film playing a different character ah. Edwin Wright just so that he can show his face at least yeah. once in the movie I actually did love the fact that he didn't talk he only saw mm. kind of a glimpse of his eyes yeah. and especially in the last <laughs> scene when he gets killed just before he gets killed off like he actually looks really scared yes his eyes yeah they're really wide but yeah. he's kind of crazy looking all the way through the movie yes yeah. yes but there's so much stuff like that that one of the bounty hunters that's chasing after the kid at one point has got this lampshade yeah. come hat that completely obscures his face yeah which is yeah very reminiscent of big trouble in little china mm-hmm. although i think mm-hmm. it's a reference to something else shogun assassin or something like that oh okay but yeah the villains you can't take too seriously because the film just keeps bubbling on this fairly light and mm-hmm. frothy yeah atmosphere i mean the only time i actually thought that some of the violence was nasty was actually coming from the Aaron Jeffrey role, from Frederick. I mean, the scene right at the end where they're having the final battle, mm-hmm. he pulls out somebody's jawbone and stabs it into their eyes <laughs> and then just gives the kid this smirking grin. And I thought, I'm not actually all that happy with that. Oh, I laughed at that bit. Did you? <laughs> I just thought, oh. I thought they were just having heaps of fun with effects. Like, I don't know. In these kind of movies, the more grotesque and violent, the better. And that definitely took the cake in terms of grotesque. Yeah, it's just, I guess it's because most of the other kills are sort of incidental. Like, I don't think the kid knows how powerful the turbo glove is until he fires it the first time and it obliterates somebody in a cloud of of blood. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, bumping into the spade and ripping off the top half of somebody. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it seems to be unintentional, whereas Frederick pulling somebody's jawbone out and ramming it into their eye sockets just seems a bit sadistic and nasty to me. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and just his <laughs> habit of calling people bitch and sweetheart and... Sure. Yeah. Sure. Referring sure. to men by female epithets. It's a trope I would have been happier to leave in the 80s, to be honest, because it it has this underlying taste of misogyny about it that I really don't like. Sure, sure, sure. Actually, going back to the kid's blaster, yeah, that when he first obliterates someone, wow. That's one of those moments where you go, okay, <laughs> this is what the movie's going to be like. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but they do build up to it nicely, though, don't they? Yeah. They don't they hit do. you over the head with these things straight away. They sort of get you settled before they hit you with a gore effect. Yeah. Oh, I guess the first gory scene was when Frederick gets his arm cut off. Mm. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Um, and then when they have that first pool battle, that was, oh, geez, that was full on. Yeah. A lot of blood. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think another reason why this movie isn't so scary and horror inducing is the fact most of the scenes are daytime scenes. Oh, right. So yeah. most of the gore effects and most of all the fighting and stuff is all during the day. Mm. And you just don't normally get that in these type of movies. It's always nighttime. It's always dark corners or abandoned warehouses. But this was always broad daylight, in the open, nowhere to hide, just blood everywhere. And I think maybe that's why the villains weren't as scary as a sort of 80s film where they hide them in shadow or light them in a specific way. Because mm. a lot of it was just daytime light. Yeah, so it just has this cheery pastel-coloured vibe to it the whole way through. Yeah. Which is refreshing. And also just the weaponry as well. Mm. <laughs> There's, like, the kid 
duct tapes two hammers together. I mean, what, what sort of weapon is that? And one of the henchmen has fashioned hammer nunchucks. Like, how dangerous could that be? Yeah, that's the thing that I love about it, is that it does seem to come from the mind of a child. Yeah. It's just shot through with that sensibility. So on the one hand, it's incredibly naive. It's not particularly sexually charged. The violence is peculiar. Mm. And the gore is completely over the top and unrealistic. Kids just love that kind of grisly stuff. So it just feels like a vision of a post-apocalyptic future put together by a 12-year-old on a BMX in 1985. (laughs) That's what it looks like to me. Yes, yes, yes. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what nostalgic nugget of trivia have you managed to pull from the smouldering wreckage of Turbo Rider's spaceship today? Well, uh, we did mention there were lots of nods to pop culture. Just a few. And the (laughs) 80s and 90s. So I'm going to quickly go through some of them. Oh, cool. The cereal box that Apple holds up to the kid. It says Slyvert. It's probably pronounced terribly, but that is actually the French name of the movie Soylent Green. Oh, of course. 1973 <laughs> sci-fi film. Apple's energy meter is very, very similar to Link's health meter in The Legend of Zelda. 1986 video game. Wow. The masked fighter in the first pool battle with the dual claws and the sort of hockey mask is actually a reference to the character Vega from Street Fighter 2, the 1991 video game. Ah. Not Jason Voorhees, which is what I thought. Well, he has like the double blade on his his fist and that's that's exactly the same weapon as Vega. And lastly, uh, when Apple was teaching the kid to fight, she says, strike first, strike hard, show no mercy, which is the motto of the Cobra Kai dojo from the Karate Kid. <laughs> wow. So much 80s. <laughs> yes. 80s and 90s nostalgia. Oh, jam-packed in this movie. Yeah, what I love is that it's not just movies, it's video games too. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. And that's our trivia. Wow. We can't talk about this film without talking about the music. Oh. Conrad. The Matos, yes. Well, let's just lay it out there. It's fucking fantastic, isn't it? Oh, (laughs) incredible. It hits you with that sort of nostalgic vibe, but because it's modern production on the music, it sounds fresh and new. Mm. And it's happy, but melancholic at the same time. It's just perfect for this post-apocalyptic setting. And coming-of-age story, it just hits mm. all the right notes. It's amazing. It is, yeah. And it doesn't suffer from the foible that I get from a lot of these 80s-tinged synthesizer scores, like in films like Oblivion or the Neutron movie by Daft Punk, whereby, yes, it gets the sounds and the textures right, but the music never goes anywhere. It's just the same four-bar phrases repeated over and over again, but with either more or fewer instruments, (laughs) and it drives me up the wall. This has themes development, themes that come back, themes that are changed, that are played in different contexts. And all of them are really memorable, catchy, lovable. I, you know, I would buy the vinyl and spin this every day. It's fantastic music. Mm-hmm. And what I particularly like about it is, although it goes for that early 80s synthesizer vibe, it doesn't necessarily lean on early 80s drum machines. It has this very live-sounding drum element underneath all of it, particularly the hi-hats, which gives it sort of a late 70s disco vibe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just brings it to life. And And when I heard what their influence was, it suddenly made sense because their inspiration was not necessarily the action sci-fi movies of the 80s. It was 80s Saturday morning cartoons. It was Mysterious Cities of Gold. I don't know if that's something that made it to New Zealand or Australia. No, I know of. Ah, yeah. Mysterious Cities of Gold and Ulysses 31. No, I don't know about that. Oh, they were really big here and obviously in French Canada as well because... Those guys, the uh, yeah, the RKSS guys, just love all of that stuff. And as soon as they said that in the commentary, I thought, 
Oh yeah, and you've nailed it. It's that's exactly what it is. It's it's an '80s Saturday morning cartoon mm-hmm. brought to life again sonically. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. it. It's fantastic. I mean, my only critique, and this is this is a very small critique, the music is all throughout the entire movie. Yeah, there's not really any moment without any music, and you know that's just a pet peeve of mine. Mm. But yeah, it's wonderful music throughout. But there were times where I just kind of wanted it to. St- just have a little bit of a breath. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the themes, you're right, the themes were so memorable mm. and they are sprinkled throughout and it does really ground the two characters of Apple and the kid mm. thematically and it kind of solidifies their love, I guess. Yeah, that love theme is beautiful. And the Matos released a song version of that love theme called No Tomorrow in 2016, oh. the day before they announced that the RKSS team are working on a sequel. They're hoping to get a sequel out. It features lyrics and vocals by... I don't know how you pronounce this, Pause. Okay. The artist behind that is Lucy Taylor. And RKSS created an eight-minute short film or music video. And it acts as a prequel to Turbo Kid. So it's Apple with her previous friend, her previous sort of human companion. Oh, the one that you see right, her with right. when you first meet her, or half of him. Okay. <laughs> and it's just this lovely song about I'll go where you are and I'll stay by you. And it's this song of unbridled devotion, but with her sitting next to this guy that's just died right. as he slowly dries out and rots. And it's sort of bittersweet <laughs> and beautiful, but desperately sad because mm. it touches on the same themes that Spielberg dealt with in AI, which is that if you create a sentient being that loves you, is that fair or responsible when you're mortal and they aren't? Mm-hmm. And you're suddenly struck with how sad it is for Apple that she's doomed to be in love with and follow around guys that eventually will mm. leave her. And it's sure. sad and wistful and beautiful, but also tinged with an awful lot of 80s nostalgia. So I recommend checking that video out. Yeah. It's on YouTube and it's a great prequel to Turbo Kid. I will, I will. <laughs> all in all, great music. The music's great. <laughs> The Matos. <laughs> and the Matos is two guys, Jean-Philippe Bernier and Jean-Nicolas Lepi. I'm probably pronouncing all of that wrong. Okay. But Jean-Philippe Bernier is the cinematographer oh, of the movie. Wow. Too. So, I mean, Very talented. Yeah, long-time collaborator with RKSS. Ooh, I look forward to the next film then. Yeah. Turbo Kid 2, I guess. Turbo Kid 2. Well, of course, they did Summer of 84. Yes. Yeah. 84. Yeah, yeah. I only just watched that recently and, oh, that ending is... It's brutal, isn't it? Wow. You're not expecting it. It's a brutal ending. Won't spoil it here. No. (laughs) Jesus. Not a happy ending for sure. (laughs) It's a completely different tone. It's the same idea. It's Mm. taking 80s nostalgia and inflecting it with something else that you wouldn't have gotten at the time. Mm. This is what would an 80s kid movie where they're investigating something be like if it was a dark serial killer movie. Yeah. Uh, And the result is... Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. argue just as good as Turbo Kid. It's just very different, but yes, it's hard hitting. It's, it's very different. It's not really a family friendly type of ending. No. <laughs> In the same way that I certainly wouldn't sit twelve year old kids down to watch Turbo Kid. I uh, I would. Would you? I would. <laughs> yes. Actually, I think perversely they would enjoy it. I think everyone should watch this. (laughs) Put it on the curriculum. Yeah. (laughs) Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. All right, listeners, who will triumph in the pool party deathmatch of the Moobly Awards? It's where we nominate our favourite buzzsaw severing parts of the film in a number of blaster liquefying categories. Best quote. Oh, so many. Because the the script is really well written. I mean, that was another Mm. thing that I didn't mention in our main discussion, but I love how beautifully written the script is, not just laden with nostalgic references. But I think if I have to pick one, it would have to be the moment when Apple is given her weapon <laughs> that uh, the kid has fashioned for her. Yeah. And she holds it aloft and screams, This is my gnome stick. <laughs> ah! <laughs> And then after she's screamed and swiped it around for a bit, stops and says, I really like it a lot. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's such a good scene. I have actually got that nominated as the funniest moment in the film because I laugh <laughs> so hard. She's just exclaiming, this is my gnome stick. It's, oh, it's such a great war cry. <laughs> so it's basically a garden gnome taped to the end of a stick. Yes, yes. Best weapon ever. Your favourite quote? My favourite quote, uh, it's when, it's actually when Apple introduces herself to the kid and she says, my name's Apple. And he replies, of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What other name would she have? Best hair or costume? I have a feeling there's going to be lots of Apple love in the Mooblies, but uh, I have to say Apple's costume, I think, is cosplay gold. Mm. She's got a turquoise jumpsuit with love heart patches, her platinum pink hair, and her turquoise and pink headband with a little silver Zelda love heart yeah. <laughs> lives on it, and her pink eyeshadow and the blue dots that she has made up on her face. I'd, she, it's just screams cosplay to me. It's a great yes, outfit. And it perfectly yes. sums her up as a character too. She's just a big bundle of feminine joy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it as well when um, she manages to find a helmet and it completely suits her outfit. I know. But she does have to take it off a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with a snake on it. Yeah. yeah. I know, but what are the chances? It matches perfectly. It's incredible. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. she does have a costume change in the second half of the movie after she's died the first time and they just uh-huh. stick her head on a new body. Yeah. Um, in that case, she is wearing a, a dress but it's over the top of another jumpsuit and it's another pink turquoise combo so yeah i love it when she wakes up as well she's like i love this dress (laughs) (laughs) she's not disturbed about the fact that she's had her disembodied head moved to something else yeah she just finds something positive in the moment and enjoys it Mm, that's mm. That's Apple. (laughs) Yeah, that's how we should all be living our lives, just like Apple. Indeed. Most 2010s moment. I would have to say the most 2010s part of this film is the fact that it is an 80s retro nostalgia inspired (laughs) movie because that is the thing to do right now in all genres. It's exactly what I've written down. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, I I said I cannot find anything. I started writing down the most 80s thing about this movie and checked myself and thought hang on no it isn't made in the 80s so i had to conclude yeah the most 2010s thing about this movie is pretty much an 80s love letter really yes 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 i did actually want to mention the most 90s or i guess 80s part of the film for me Uh is the glowing electrified ball in the spaceship because that thing (laughs) was in every museum and every science museum for me growing up like I saw a lot of electrified balls that you just had to touch and it would go electrifying and yes Yes. Pretty much my childhood. <laughs> That's actually my sci-fi cliche, oh. particularly <laughs> from the 80s, is that plasma ball. Because whenever they needed a bit of set dressing that looked sort of sci-fi uh-huh. and spacey, they'd just shove one of those balls in yes, there yes, and yes. have somebody touch it. It was invariably some sort of control device or a generator, mm-hmm. or it was always some sort of doohickey stuck in a sci-fi set. So, yeah. <laughs> Plasma balls. Yes. Favourite scene. My favourite scene, the first pool battle and that that pool, (laughs) the pool party. (laughs) It's mine as well. (laughs) It's just so extreme. Like I was not expecting that much gore and just a combination of accidental deaths with sort of incidental deaths. And it's just so hard to explain. You just have to witness it to really understand what we're talking about yeah it's by far the best action scene in the whole movie i would say and it's it's so many fun visual gags in this gladiatorial battle Mm. the early false start from apple where she (laughs) they're sort of trying to formulate their plan for okay you take this guy and you take this guy and you take this guy but unfortunately as soon as he says to apple you attack that guy she just goes straight for (laughs) before they're ready and beats the guy to death with her (laughs) 
gnome stick <laughs> and then stands up and looks so pleased with herself and it's kind of horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also hilarious. The red shirt who trips and falls face first onto his own knife and it goes into his eye socket. <laughs> The Krull-style bladed spinning weapon that's mounted under the camera and gets knocked away by the kid at the mm -hmm. last moment before it hits him in the face. Uh, so many grisly deaths, like you said, the top of the head spinning. Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know. It's funny, well-paced, well-acted, beautifully edited. It creates a sense of the spatial relationships between everybody so you never get confused as to who's where or what's happening. There's some real jeopardy in there, but it's also endearing as yeah. well with Apple still. It's just a beautifully executed microcosm of what this film gets right when it's when it's firing on all cylinders. Mm -hmm. This is what it looks like. And I love that pool scene. Yes, yes, yes. Most cliche sci-fi moment. So my sci-fi cliche I've already mentioned is the plasma ball, hey, which is in yes. every single 80s sci-fi movie set. <laughs> How about your cliche? Uh, I, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a sci-fi cliche. Oh, kind of. More action. But the uh, the suiting up montage when Servo oh, <laughs> Kid yeah. gets his costume for the first time and there's the music and there's the close-ups and the clicking and the, the sheathing and the putting on of clothes <laughs> you gotta have one of those suiting up montages oh yeah what i like about it though is they don't sexualize monroe chambers either no. like there aren't close-ups of his crotch or his ass or anything no. like that or, or in that dreadful batman movie where they've all got nipples yeah. <laughs> rubber nipples yes <laughs> oh, so many close-ups of butt cheeks and nipples <laughs> in that film it's deeply disturbing <laughs> <laughs> Best special effect. There are so many great gory practical effects Oof, in this movie, so but my favorite just has to be what they refer to as the totem pole, where the guys are staggering <laughs> around with one half of one guy on his head and the legs of the same guy on the head of that guy and it's just all stumbling around and i like it because not only is it ridiculous and grotesque and disturbing but it's really well done i mean all of them actually do look like fully jointed limbed yeah. moving things rather than rubbery unconvincing wobbly yeah. scarecrows or something it actually looks real it does. but it's also ridiculous so yeah i love that i think it's great I love the sort of escalation as well because at first it was just the top half of one guy on top of a guy and then the bottom yeah. half of one guy on top of another guy and then another <laughs> guy gets blasted in half and then his top goes on top of the top of one guy on top of another guy. So it's three <laughs> dudes attached to... It's just... Who thinks of this? This is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely get points for invention, that's for sure. <laughs> Favourite sound effect. I mean, there's so much juicy, bloody, gory sound effects throughout the film. I mean, they must have been splashing around with lots of melons and fruit for this movie. <laughs> but I do really love, uh, and this is a sound that you don't hear anymore, but when, after the suiting up montage with uh, the kid, he does this kind of fist pump into the air, and there's this kind of real 80s cartoon shing sound yep. that you just don't hear anymore. I don't even know how they make that sound with the synth, maybe. But, oh, it's such yeah. a nostalgic sound. I love it. Oh, that's exactly what I've really? written as well. oh, No <laughs> <Yeah>. way. <laughs> it's very manga-inflected, I think, yeah. And also, I love the fact that all of the effects that come off of that glove are all, like, hand-drawn, yeah. rotoscoped animation yeah, effects yeah, from the yeah. 80s, too. But, yeah, that is my favourite sound effect, too, after he suits up and puts his hand up in the air and you get that shing. Yeah, I love it's it. It's so good. It's <laughs> such a such a unique sound. Most funniest moment. I was in stitches throughout most of the movie. 
Uh, so it was really hard to pick something. Um, we've talked about a lot of really funny moments mm. already. I think one that I just wanted to highlight in case it got lost in the mix is the moment when Frederick's sidekick is killed by Skeletron's projectile circular saw weapon. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's when he's taking a leak by the side of the road. So you get this hilarious horror effect where as he tips over, you get this arc of blood spraying <laughs> up in the air. Yeah. And then shortly after, afterwards this arc of urine <laughs> because he's still, he's still being yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good such attention to detail <laughs> it is yeah apparently there was an another special effect that they had planned and it was ready to go which was a scene where after the guy lifts the totem pole body off the top of his head he throws up and then gets the top of his head chopped off, and then the body that's oh, left is puking no. and spraying oh. blood at the same time. Oh my god! <laughs> it's in the T for Turbo short if you want to check oh, it out. Okay, there's an early version of it there. But yeah, they had it all ready. They just didn't have time to shoot oh. it. But they said all these ideas they've just stored up for Turbo Kid too. So yes, brace yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and your funniest moment I already mentioned it the uh, the gnome stick uh, exclamation uh, oh yeah. so good it's just yeah. it's so unexpected and I love how emphatic she is it's just mm. oh that amount of enthusiasm <laughs> is so infectious it's great <laughs> yeah no hats off to Laurence Leboeuf um, for her performance in this movie because uh, I don't think anybody else could have done what she does with mm -hmm. Apple it's incredible mm -hmm. love it and that's our movie awards it is Right, listeners, we are back for the final verdict of Turbo Kid. Should this film emerge victorious in the post-apocalyptic fight for water and be praised by all 80s kids? Or should it be disemboweled one intestine at a time to be swept <laughs> into the oubliette, never to be spoken of again? Conrad. Oh, my. Mm, Turbo Kid. Mm. Final thoughts. Well, I don't think it'll come as any surprise to listeners that I absolutely adored every moment yes. of this movie. <laughs> it has some troublesome aspects. We do have a manic pixie robot girl mm -hmm. in operation here, but because she's a man-made, idealised version of a woman... And because the film is subtly critiquing robots, but without getting too heavy handed with it, I think they kind of get away with it. And I think because Laurence Leboeuf is so fantastic in the role, you just can't help but fall in love with Apple and the kid. Monroe Chambers is great too. The ridiculous gore, the fact that the film plays with the conventions from the 80s, it's kind of a love letter to the 80s, but it's not empty. It's really detailed, the level of, of 80s-ception that's going on mm -hmm. here in terms of references. It's just a delight. But it's just so finely crafted in terms of the cinematography and the production design. And even when they do come up against the limitations, which I think they do in the final battle, I don't think it's as good as the pool party or in the scene where one of the bounty hunters is chasing the kid, I think it was supposed to be dozens and dozens of bikes and it just ends up with one guy on a bicycle pedalling furiously yeah. with loads of sort of snap zooms and flashy editing trying to cover <laughs> up the fact that it's just two guys on bikes. <laughs> it sort of just enjoys itself and I think that's the thing about this film that I went away with, just with a massive fucking grin on my face because it's so exuberant and just like Apple, it has its joys set to 11 it wants to entertain it wants to give you a good time and that's what it did i loved every single moment of it mm -hmm. well i can't really add anything to that uh 100 <laughs> agree it was just a joy that is how i would describe this movie just a joy mm. to watch every part of it was joyful and there was so much heart 
and humour, mm. didn't take itself seriously, and it was just completely drenched in nostalgia in all the best ways. And, of course, the music oh. itself. Even if it was a blank screen, the music itself makes this movie amazing. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love this film. Yeah. I think it's not just being ejected from the Ubiad, it's being rocketed out with a fanfare. <laughs> <laughs> so away you go, Turbo Kid. This is my gnome Be free. And I can't wait for Turbo Kid 2. Neither can I. I hope they do it before <laughs> Munro Chambers hits 40. <laughs> <laughs> Until the sequel comes out, what are we going to be doing next time, Conrad? Well, we'll be celebrating an anniversary because on the 12th of July, it will be the 35th anniversary of the release of the American science fiction fantasy flop. Explorers. Oh, you have mentioned this movie many times and I've never many. seen it. <laughs> many, many, many times. <laughs> yeah. This is a childhood favourite of mine. I was actually really thrilled when Duncan Skiles mentioned it when I said that I had a video collection ah, yes. of escapist fantasy and sci-fi movies as a kid. And one of the first things he said when he said, let's guess what was on that shelf. And he said, explorers. So ah, yes, he did. knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. So this is a movie directed by Joe Dante. Quite a few of his oh, movies. Wow. In the yes, our yeah. favourite. Mm, starring a triumvirate of child actors. Ethan Hawke is in there, along with River Phoenix and Jason Presson. And it has music by a guy called Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, don't know. oh yeah. That is. Must be some newcomer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure he'll be as good as Lamatos, but we shall see. <laughs> Rather excitingly, we have a very, very, very special guest joining us for that episode. In a new format, actually, because rather than joining us for a whole discussion, we actually found somebody who's in the movie to just reminisce with us in a separate interview segment that yeah, we'll have in the episode. Yeah, so. And you'll find out who it is when the episode comes out. <laughs> but I was wetting my pants when this person said yes. So, yes, I'm very excited to share that with you next time. Great. And if you want to keep up with our episodes and find out when they come out, you can follow us on all our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oobliet. Indeed, yes. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And we're also on Patreon. So if you would like to support us, please do head on over there. For a dollar, you can nominate and vote on films for us to cover in future episodes, as Thomas Kaiser did for today's episode, yes. where we covered Turbo Kid. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. Such a good recommendation. Exactly. Yeah, we loved it. Yes, and for $5, you get access to lots of bonus extra material, including next time there will be an extended one-hour version of our interview with our special guest. So, uh -huh. yeah, well worth that $5, I think. $75. Come on. Mm, $75. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we say this in the context of a massive global recession, but hey. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but this is this is a reason why we really appreciate all the support that we do get from people because we know it's, it's difficult right now. Mm -hmm. Thanks again to Thomas Kaiser for suggesting this film. Yes. And thanks for listening. Until next time. Bye for now. This is my dome stack. <laughs> <laughs> Don't up the movie, Ubi, yet. I stroke genitals. <laughs>